Green Dreamer is an independent podcast supported directly by listeners like you. And this allows us to critically and honestly cover anything and everything, and also explore narratives often sidelined by mainstream outlets. So if you're learning from or inspired by the show, we need you. And we're counting on your support starting at just a tip of $2 a month at patreon.com slash green dreamer. We don't want to put up a paywall though. So if you can't afford to give anything right now, please don't worry at all. Just take good care of yourself and your loved ones and enjoy the show. And if you've already contributed, share the show or written us a five-star review, all this helps so much and we are so grateful. Thank you. Home is not something that's abstract. Home is always place-based. In the Apache territory, every rock, every tree, every mountain, every landmark has a story. And, and it's in those stories that gives the people their identity. And, and when I understood that concept in that way, it made me want to think of dwelling as a relationship. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Lenny Mendoza-Strobel, a Kapampangan from central Luzon in the Philippines. She's currently a settler on Wapo, Pomo, and Coast Miwok lands, and she's a founding elder at the Center for Babylon Studies and a professor emerita in American Multicultural Studies at Sonoma State University. Welcome, Tita Lenny. It's an honor to have you join us on the show. Thank you, and good morning, or good evening, or good afternoon to your audience, Kamea. It's good to be here. So a core theme that you center your work on is a sense of belonging. And I think this is something that, as proven by our increasing loneliness epidemic, that many people may be yearning to find or might not even recognize that that is what's missing. So I'd love to begin by having you share how you came to find your place and sense of belonging, especially through becoming conscious of the role that the colonial system and mindset played in shaping your perspectives and identity. Yeah, thank you for that question. Maybe I would like to answer the question by sharing my story of how I came to settle in the U.S. or on Turtle Island. I came here almost 40 years ago, and by way of interracial marriage. But by that time, I wasn't yet aware, when I came here, I wasn't yet aware that what racialization means, what colonial mentality means. But I soon began to question my own sense of non-belonging, my own sense of alienation, of, of feeling marginalized in this culture because of the way that people looked at me and asked me questions. Coming from someone from the Philippines who has had a good colonial education, being familiar with American history, American textbooks, American popular culture, when I came here, I expected that I would fit in easily. So it was a surprise to me. And, and I thought, wow, I have always identified with America, but America does not identify with me. So that was the beginning of a decolonization journey. And I decided that I would go back to school to try to understand myself, understand this lack of sense of belonging. And I ended up doing a doctorate in international and multicultural education 
But what really resonated with me in, in throughout this graduate program was my discovery of Filipino indigenous psychology as a counter-narrative to the colonial narrative that I had been educated and conditioned by. So I could go more in detail about that process, but let me know if I should continue or if you have another question. Yeah, I guess I'm curious to hear your experience trying to decolonize your psyche within the setting of formal institutions, because that that sounds like that's where you got to unravel and re-identify your sense of belonging and place. Yeah. Well, it was in the first book that really spoke to me was America is in the Heart by Carlos Bulosan, who talked about the history of the Manong generation, the earlier generation of Filipinos that came to the U.S. in the 1930s as laborers. But the other books that really opened my eyes and gave me the language to articulate this lack of sense of belonging and why it was the way it was, was Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And then from then on, I was introduced to the work of Gloria Ansaldua in Borderlands, Bell Hooks, Cornell West, Panon, and, and, and other post-colonial theorists of that time. And having the cognitive or intellectual foundation for critiquing and naming my own experiences as a post-colonial subject is really was kind of very liberating for me because in, in studying in particular Filipino indigenous psychology, prior to this, or at least my understanding of who we are as Filipinos was defined by foreign anthropologists and philosophers and missionaries that came to the Philippines, you know, throughout the colonial era. So when we finally had Filipino indigenous psychology and Filipino core values were defined in terms of kapwa and pakikiramdam, and and now, you, you know, these are Filipino concepts, but when you translate them, they get translated into intersubjectivity, interdependence, interconnectedness, and so on. So the process of decolonization for me led to another question, you know, like, what do you do after you decolonize? And as I was reflecting and asking myself this question, I began to be attracted to indigenous authors and writers and poets and novelists and so on. So as I began to to read indigenous literature, uh, reading Vine Deloria, uh, Linda Hogan, Gerald Vissener, uh, Leslie Marmon Silco, and so on, I, I was resonating with the worldview that they were presenting. I was resonating with their ideas. And, and I realized then that I was being called to rediscover my own indigenous roots as a Filipino. And of course, this is a very kind of complicated, complex process because even when I trace my ancestry back all the way back to the Philippines, three or four generations back, I know that there's no such thing as purity, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. So in my lineage, there are some Chinese, there's some Spanish in there, there's probably Malay, 
There might have been some Sufi connection. There might have been, because there was Islamic trading in that part of the Philippines during the pre-colonial era. So when I say I'm trying to recover an indigenous mind or an indigenous identity, I then had to see my own people, the Kapampangans, as settlers who, who themselves have displaced the Aita, who were the indigenous peoples of that area, of that part of the Philippines. So I have been working on what it means to recover a sense of indigenous identity. And since this is what was calling to me, I began to then look for answers in in the definition of the word itself. What does it mean to be indigenous? And I began to understand that if you are going to claim to be indigenous, then you have to understand your relationship to the land, that it's all about the land. And, and that is when, when I started doing this work and just looking at the land where my body is on and the land and the homeland that my body left 30 years ago, 40 years ago, it made me want to settle. It made me want to learn how to dwell in place. And that has meant learning where my body has lived for, you know, almost 40 years now on this Wapo and Pomo and Coast Miwok lands. So that's what I've started to do. I think that our inability to live in reciprocity with our uh, unique bioregional landscapes stems from a lot of our lack of relationship to place, which is what you've been speaking to. And much of that is the result of colonialism and the displacement, erasure, and marginalization of indigenous communities that have had the place-based knowledge and relationships. But this sense of dwelling being rooted in knowing the land and the historical context can feel abstract, especially when we're often told to define home and comfort in more materialistic and tangible ways. So my question is, what are the signs to you that our ways of understanding belonging within the colonial system have often been reductive and limiting in ways that haven't really brought about the true grounding and deeper fulfillment that we're yearning for? Yeah, you know, when I started thinking about this sense of belonging from an indigenous lens, I realized then that as a colonial subject, because the Philippines was under 400 years of of Spanish and American colonization, we were not really taught how to dwell in place. We were not taught how to love the land, how to be in relationship with the land. It was the beginning of of us becoming modernized. It was all about, oh, you have to become civilized, you have to get educated, you have to... And so all of our desires were sort of shaped by that kind of narrative, by that kind of story. And and even in, in my family, going abroad, going to the U.S., going to the West was like what shaped us, what shaped our sense of belonging. So when I finally came here, I said, oh, okay, I finally come to live in the master's house. How come I'm still not happy? You know, And I realized that the sense of home, I, I was partially able to answer that question by internalizing 
and, and appreciating who I am as a Filipino from the perspective of Filipino indigenous psychology and Filipino indigenous spirituality. But in the end or in the present, what has become more important to me is, you know, home is not something that's abstract. Home is always place-based. And, and part of that definition had to do with learning who you live with, learning who has lived here before settlers came. If I can claim and if I'm allowed to claim to be part of this landscape now, that gives me a sense of grounding, a sense of belonging. So, yeah. Does that answer you? I think it's absolutely. And I think it's just interesting to think about how when a lot of people think about making dwelling, what often comes to mind is the physical comforts of maybe decorating your house in a certain way that makes you feel good. And all of that, it's not it's not exclusive. It could happen at the same time as building relationships to place. But I think this element of building relationships to the communities that have ancestral ties to these landscapes and also building relationships directly to these landscapes, these are often elements that are overlooked when people try to make a physical house, their dwelling, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I learned the concept of dwelling from Keith Basso, who wrote uh, Wisdom Sits in Places. And in this book, he was talking about how in the Apache territory, every rock, every tree, every mountain, every landmark has a story. And, and it's in those stories that gives the people their identity. And and when I understood that concept in that way, it made me want to think of dwelling as a relationship, you know. Mm-hmm. And the other the other writer that helped me understand that concept is Martin Prechtel, who is uh, a shaman living in New Mexico, but but he went to Guatemala and ended up being a shaman in, in a Guatemala. He's half white and half indigenous, ended up in Guatemala and became a, a medicine person. And Martin Prechtel was writing about building a house of origins, that when you, when you build a home, make sure that everything in your house carries the story that you would like to be passed on to your children. You know, what are those stories? So when I took that seriously and, and, and I started to think of my physical, my material house as, as carrying these stories, what kind of objects did I want to be represented? So that's when I started creating my altars in my home where there is an ancestral altar and, and, and the pictures of our families and, and, and the objects that I brought back from the Philippines and my husband's objects that he brought in from where he came from, from Eastern Montana, became the, the bearers of these stories. So when people come to our house and, and they immediately see what's on the wall and there is a story. And, and I think that makes dwelling very meaningful for me. I mean, every... Everything that I bring into the house has a story. So, yeah. Um, 
I also wonder if this is part of the reason why people have become so unfulfilled by the constant accumulation of stuff is because a lot of the stuff that we're accumulating, there's no meaning or stories attached to them in the minds of the consumer because people are purely looking at them for their material value rather than their deeper stories of the histories of these objects and who made them and where they came from. So I wonder if, you know, we could all become less consumptive if we were to cherish each item more and to see them as not just purely physical objects, but something that embodies stories of their own that could actually enrich our lives in this deeper way. Yeah. And I think that deeper way really has to do with something that is connected to our own, to someone's understanding of the ideologies that conditions us, you know, whether it's white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchy. And if you want to be philosophical about it, you know, when was the time when Americans learned to define happiness in terms of material accumulation? You know, when was that Mm. time that philosophers began to think in terms of utilitarianism, for example. So in, in, in my teaching, when I was in the classroom, one of the frameworks that I used was called ethno-autobiography, which is a way of helping us heal from the discontents of modernity, you know, and through the indigenous lens. And one of the exercises that I used to do in the classroom is to ask students to bring an artifact from their family history. And, you know, an artifact is usually an object that is meaningful for you, that is that carries the story of your lineage and how they came to this country and so on. And so the student would bring a jewelry, a rosary, someone even brought in a, a rifle and cl- pieces of clothing or... And, and somebody brought in a piece of china, a teacup, and, and said that this is the only thing that her great-great-grandmother brought from the Germany to this country and so on. And so all of those artifacts, they then had to tell the story. And we would put all these artifacts in the middle of the room, and I say, see how all of your artifacts are connected to each other so that you start to build community in the classroom as the students begin to see how their artifacts and the stories of those artifacts are connected to each other. They're connected to stories of settlement. They're connected to stories of slave owning. They're connected to stories of immigration and so on and so forth. So we we created a lot of rituals around that kind of practice so that they, you know, so that you begin to see the importance of how stories shape us. You know, there are small stories and then there are big stories. And when we talk about the small story, we talk about the personal story, the family story. When when you begin to talk about how your small story is embedded within the big story, the meta-narrative of nation building, for example, the meta-narrative of capitalism or globalization or white supremacy, 
those are the big stories that you begin to understand. And then when you begin to do your own ancestral research, for example, when you begin to understand how your history of settlement has impacted your own sense of identity, your sense of belonging, then you begin to connect the dots and then you begin to make sense of who you are and, and what you're... And, and when we say who you are, I'm usually referring to the definition of what a long body is. You know, uh, Stanley Krippner, a psychologist, t- defines our identities as a long body, which means you're not just your physical self, you're also the past and the ancient past of who you've been, who your ancestors are, and who you are into the future. So we have this long body, which means that our identity continues. It's, it's not limited by our physical body. So in a way, there is an element of spirituality there. And, and you also begin to see where the indigenous perspective comes in, in that kind of defining you know, who we are. So what I'm finding and and I'm what I'm paying attention to is well let me backtrack. When I began to study indigenous worldviews, you know, I began to understand that the future could be indigenous. Because if if we are on a path of self-destruction, this this capitalist system is self-destructing at the moment, yeah, because of what it's doing to the environment, because of what it's doing to people's mental health and so on. So if we look at the history of indigenous peoples and how they have survived generation after generation of genocide and holocausts and extermination programs and so on, why are they still here? You know, when I look at that and ask myself that question, what what is it that makes them survive? And and then that is when I realize that they have a sense of seven generations into the future and more than seven, seven generations from the past. And, and living in that kind of sense of time is um, very different from our modern mindsets, right? So, Mm. yeah, let me pause there for a moment. Yeah, so much in what you just said. You often speak to decolonization as a way to transform the consciousness of the colonized. And there's a phrase that's been shared a lot that decolonization is not a metaphor. And the original text, it came from Dr. Yang and Tuck. It speaks to this subject in expansive ways, though, as an example, it mentions that in school settings, calls to decolonize student thought turns decolonization into a metaphor. I don't think that your idea of decolonizing the psyche is what they're speaking to, but I do think that many people, when sharing this idea that it's not a metaphor, are hoping to see structural and material changes to how society is organized. And so decolonizing the mind, or as you also include decolonizing memories, feelings, attitudes, values, knowledge, doubts, and fear, can be overlooked. So I wonder if you can expand upon what you mean by decolonizing the psyche and also share your thoughts on how we're conditioned to intellectually belittle 
the transformative potentials of shifting minds and relationships, which might not be as tangible and can therefore be perceived as metaphorical. Decolonization to me is like a lifelong process. So at the beginning, as people begin to approach the or, or begin to understand decolonization, they may see it as a metaphor or something that is merely symbolic. And, and that's also how I started, you know, to begin to, when, when, for example, I began to look at the history of the pre-colonial Filipino shamanic person, the medicine person, and, and I approached this material and began to appropriate it as something that was very empowering for me, you know, to know that there was this Babylon figure in Filipino uh, indigenous history and, and that this figure is still alive and is still present and so on. And I have been called out for doing that as a symbolic gesture, you know, mm-hmm. but, and, and because they said, oh, well, what is your relationship to the living Babylons in the homeland? Well, I couldn't point directly. I could point to some of those relationships that I had, but those relationships are kind of not, they're not land-based because I'm here. I'm in the diaspora and so on. And our I have a relationship to some indigenous communities, but I can't say that it is immersive, you know, for example. So, so yes, it can be metaphorical as a beginning, as an entry point. Later on, I think if we're doing the work the, the, of, of healing the psyche, because the splitting of the psyche is what you're trying to heal when you're doing this work, the separation of your body and your mind and your spirit. And, and you might do this work intellectually in the academe. You know, you can, you can peruse all the deconstructive theories, post-colonial, post-modern theorizing. But then there comes a time when your body begins to speak. <laughs> it begins mm-hmm. to say, okay, but where is your body? You know, what is your body saying? And and for me, that is when decolonization evolved into something that's no longer metaphorical, but something that was more real, material. You know, that's why I was called, I was attracted to the, to the indigenous perspective because I, I felt that that is the path, the portal that opened up to me in completing or not completing, but in, in deepening, deepening this decolonizing process. And I think somehow it's, well, it is, it is hard work. It is very contentious because what we're doing when we're decolonizing is to begin to unlearn the kind of conditioning that we've had as modern folks, you know, but how do you, how do we begin to disidentify, for example, with the U.S. as a superpower? How, you, how do you disidentify with the U.S. as the number one global superpower or number one in everything and so on? I, it's, I have begun to disidentify with those kinds of narratives. Mm. And Sometimes that is that kind of position. When you take those positions, you begin to get called out and call, called all kinds of names. I've been called, you know, 
in, in my community, it's to be critical of the U.S. as empire, as colonizer, is kind of taboo because that's what happened to us under colonization is we fell in love with our colonizers. And, and part of decolonization is seeing that, you know, seeing how that kind of ideology has worked itself deep into our psyche so that we could not untangle ourselves from it, even when we try. So uh, for me, doing this at, at the personal level has been difficult, as, but at the same time has been very healing. And I don't want to get too much into religion, nor am I asking you to, depending on how you're feeling. But you did say something in passing before that I found interesting, stemming from the animist background of your culture. And to preface this, just generally speaking, beliefs and our worldviews very much shape how we relate to the world, whether they're belief systems like animism that see sacredness as being tied to specific landscapes and have relationships to place, or more centralized belief systems that aren't necessarily rooted in place. So I'm curious to hear what were some of the thought processes that you personally have gone through from looking at religion, indigenous beliefs and cultures, and relationships or belonging with the land? Well, you know, that's the first thing I had to look at in this process of decolonization because I grew up as a Methodist in a Catholic, animistic, shamanic culture, which the Philippines is, you know, that underneath or the veneer of Catholicism is a very strong subterranean indigenous spirituality, animist animist and shamanic in character. So I began to look at that and I, I began to uh, study how being a Methodist, being a which in a way is kind of a minority position, you know, in, in the Philippines when it, because the country is very Catholic. And, and so that has shaped the path of decolonization for me is to see the role of Christianity and, and missionary work and colonialism and how all of those are married. They're married to each other. Even in the U.S., evangelical Protestant Christianity is married to the capitalist system. So part of the work of decolonizing then for me is to see how religious institutions or, or theology or doctrine, like the doctrine of discovery, you know, was used, was used as a tool of colonial subjugation. And in fact, you know, we can say now that white supremacy is really the child of a white theology. You know, there there is a, a theologian that has written books about that. But I know that so many most Filipinos are very devoted, you know, they're, they're very religious. But 
When I study Filipino religiosity and devotion, I know that what undergirds that is is an indigenous spirituality. And I think that's also true for, for example, in Latin America, you know, where the, where, and that's been documented, that indigenous spirituality undergirds the veneer of Catholic spirituality. I think what especially stood out to me was when you pointed out that belief systems like animism really see sacredness within the landscape. Yeah. Whereas a lot of more centralized belief systems have maybe like a sacred text that people are conceptualizing divinity based off of. I think that is beginning to change because part of the paradigm shift that I'm seeing in terms of, of religion or spirituality is we're shifting from the view of the divine or God as something that's transcendent, something that's out there, something that's up in the heavens, you know. And, and when you begin to see that God is immanent, which means that God is everywhere, God is here, that, that tends to resonate or coincide more, agree more with animist beliefs that says everything is sacred, everything has divinity, is infused with divinity, and we are divine, and we we are all in sacred relationship to each other. And in fact, the Filipino core value of Kapwa is exactly that. It it acknowledges the divinity within each of us and the divinity of our connection to the land and to non-human beings and to the cosmos. Mm. And so in that way, for me, Filipino indigenous spirituality is so much more inclusive and and deep you know and yeah it's it's i i can it when 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 it gets to the point when i'm really speechless it means that i'm trying to express something that i don't have the words the language yet because part of the reason is that english is not my first language and it's a complex topic so i really appreciate what you have just shared with us and before i ask you for your guidance on our path forward i would love to explore what it means that we've politicized indigeneity so there's the nuance that decolonization goes along with re-indigenization part of which as we discussed today is rebuilding relationships with place with indigenous communities and with the history of place as a way of healing and this sort of trauma processing is what indigenous communities need to go through it's what indigenous persons displaced from their ancestral lands and communities need to go through. And it's also something that people not categorized as indigenous today who also have lost, long lost their sense of deep belonging to place. This feels like universal work that everyone needs to engage with in their own ways. Yet at the same time, the political designation of indigenous rightfully is exclusive because they have important implications in advancing the rights of Native communities that historically have been harmed. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how we can best navigate this nuance to support everyone's own journeys to finding and making dwelling. As a Kapampangan, I am not indigenous. In the Philippines, Kapampangans are not indigenous because we are one of the major ethnic groups in the Philippines. In the United States, in, in on Turtle Island, I can say I am in the process of recovering my indigenous mind. I am not indigenous. 
and and by saying that i am honoring and and prioritizing those who have the right to call themselves indigenous you know the more than 500 sovereign tribal nations inside the us right now so that's why when i started doing this work locally and invited a cohort of people to start looking at healing and reconciliation with indigenous communities so that we might do a ceremony of apology and forgiveness in the future. One of the things that we begin with is the question of how do you understand what it means to be a settler? How did you come to settle here? How does the history of genocide impact your sense of place and sense of belonging? We only took in the people who were willing to look at those questions. And it was hard at the beginning because a lot of white folks do not know how to begin to do the ancestral work, ancestral research needed to take on this kind of journey. So we are now at a point where we are looking at the land back movement. We are looking at land transition. We are looking at healing and repair and, and looking at you know, the feasibility of maybe having a land tax, which the Ohlone people have done with the Shumi land tax and so on. So we are aligning ourselves with those kinds of movements as settlers. And and I know that there are folks that are wanting to, they, they like the sense of what it means to be indigenous, but then they might not like the idea of having to return land. Mm-hmm. So, but the way I see it in, in the United States, when I look at this movement, I am encouraged by, for example, the young people, I think they call themselves the resource generation, the young people who are beginning to want to affiliate themselves with the land back movement. They want their resources to go to these kinds of movements in order to correct or, or to make the to heal historical trauma, you know. So this, there are some real things that are happening in this movement now that are led by the young people. They know how to make structural changes. They know how to change policy. They know how to uh, navigate the systems necessary to make these kinds of changes. So it's not so that the change that we want to make does not remain kind of at the level of desire or the level of symbolism or metaphorical Mm. because it is hard work and and it does ask you well for me I'm, i'm beginning to ask myself well what would it look like if we begin to downsize our lifestyle and and we're beginning to do that how do we how do we downsize our lifestyles because if you're running out of fossil fuel, if you're running out of space, how do you make space for other people? So, and we can we can go into that in discussion of of global capitalism, but that will be another <laughs> conversation. Yeah, and I think all of this speaks to perhaps the importance of the preceding work of decolonizing people's memories and identities and psyche because without that being done people do not have a felt sense or felt understanding of the need to be aligned with land back for example and why uh, returning lands to the first caretakers of land 
is actually hugely beneficial to our collective and our planetary yeah. healing. Yeah. So in this sense, I do think that even though a lot of people may see the work of decolonizing the mind as mm -hmm. being metaphorical because it's not tangible, I almost feel like it's a precondition that needs yeah. to be met before we can actually enact the tangible and structural changes for people to yeah. be aligned with that politic and have the relational and worldview shifts that will then manifest in the real tangible changes. Yeah, yeah. In fact, that is the challenge that, that indigenous folks always present to us when they ask us, you know, who are you? When they ask that question, who are you? They're not asking for your personal identification. They're asking you to tell your story of who your people are, who you belong to. So they're asking for the story of your long body, which many of us would probably not be able to answer mm -hmm. unless we've done the work, you know. Mm. And I know that there is some movement now where a lot of white folks are doing that work. That's why Ancestry.com, 23andMe, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of reckoning happening right now, right? And, and some of that is good and some of it is very political and some of it is dangerous too, you know, because of course there are those folks that will hold on to the way things used to be. And, and I mm -hmm. think young people are ready to move on and uh, yeah, ready to change the paradigm and because they know, they, they can see it. It seems to me, you know, I think the young people can see more clearly than the old ones. I think we're all hopefully slowly waking up to the reality that whatever is happening today is not working and people's yeah. understandings of why might differ. People's ideologies of where we need to head towards might be different also, but uh, it's important to have these dialogues so that we can find a common memory of where we came from and what yeah. needs to happen next. And in terms of our next steps, what are some of your words of guidance for people making home of places that we don't have ancestral relationships with to support people to reconnect with and embody lands where we are settlers or visitors to, especially when a lot of us are aware that a lot of these places hold painful memories of violence, exploitation, and being taken away from their first caretakers? Yeah. I think when you first begin to do this work, what comes up are the shadows, you know, the historical shadow material. So where are those places in the culture or in society where people can work with that historical shadow material and have a container for the grief and the mourning that is necessary to do this work, to heal the shadow material, you know? And I know there are there are places here and there where people are are sharing resources on how they can do that. I know I've done that in in when I was teaching and I'm doing that in my communities still, you know, to to always find a way of creating a container for grief. You know, where are those ceremonies? Where are the elders? Where are the guides? Where are the stories that will help us hold it together in community because we cannot heal individually. You know, we cannot heal without each other. And I think we're coming around to that realization, right? So, and one of my mentors 
many years ago said, Lenny, he says, do not worry about indigenous peoples disappearing because all it takes is for one of them to dream and everything becomes alive again. The future is indigenous, you know. So when I, I've always lived by, by that, by that vision of everyone beginning to understand what it means to imagine an indigenous future. But I think so many people, so many of my teachers are saying that, that what is emerging right now is the need to grieve, the need to mourn. I think when something is dying and something is being born, of course, you know, where are those containers? And I, and, and people like Resma Menachem, for example, is talking about creating bodies of culture, you know. How are white people creating bodies of culture that will help them grieve and heal, you know, the trauma of, of white supremacy? So, and, and there are many teachers now that, that come to mind that are offering those containers. But I'm also aware that in a capitalist society, it's very easy to commodify everything. You know, so be, be be discerning, be discerning when you look for teachers, when you look for spaces where you you want to be in community and you want to do this work together. But I think what we're doing collectively right now and in and, and programs like yours, Kamea, is creating a container for not only dialogue, not only for intellectual engagement, but also a community of seekers and 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 maybe simulate a sense of belonging to a village you know so belong belonging to a beloved community What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Well, I am currently reading Sand Talk by Tyson Yunkaporta, who is from mm. Australia. And I think the subtitle is How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. And I've just finished reading Leanne Beta Samosake Simpson's as we have always done. I'm speaking with Tyson on Sunday, actually. So I've been oh. reading his book, Sand Talk. So I'm very excited for that conversation. Oh, <laughs> and wow. even more excited now that you mentioned it. Yeah. What do you tell yourself to stay motivated and inspired? All I have to do is go outside and stare at this redwood tree outside my deck and commune with the tree and stand in my qigong position, in a hugging the tree position. Sometimes I just sit under the apple tree or under the apricot tree in my garden. Sometimes I just walk around smelling the flowers and, and talking to my grandmother. 
So that always grounds me and, and brings me home because it tells me when I do these things, I know that I am not alone. You know, I think part of, of the sickness that we inherit in this modern framework is that we are alone. And, and I am not. I know, um, you know, even when I feel the wind blowing in my face, I know I'm not alone. What makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? Young people makes me hopeful. The ones who know how to do critical analysis, historical analysis, those who know how to connect the dots, those who are out on the streets. I am thinking right now of a Black and Filipino activist in Nashville, Tennessee, young man who has been leading the BLM protests since last year and is now facing criminal charges because the governor of that state has criminalized protests, you know, to make it illegal. So they're using him as an example or kind of, you know, warning. So he's in my mind very much these days because these are the kinds of kids that I have faith in and I can trust and I can hope with. Yeah. Thank you so much. We are coming to a close, but to our listeners, if you want to stay updated and learn more from Dita Lenny's work, you can head to www.lennystrobel.com and centerforbabalanstudies.org. These will be linked in our show notes at greendreamer.com. And you can also follow her on Facebook at Lenny.Strobel and on Instagram at Lenny.Strobel. Dita Lenny, thank you so much for this deeply nourishing and enriching discussion. Really appreciate it having you here. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Get to know your long body. You are listening to Green Dreamer, a community-powered show which you can support and co-create with us starting from $2 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. We don't have any corporate sponsors nor a marketing agency behind us. So if you enjoyed the episode and can help share it with your friends or write a review in the podcast app, that would help so much and be so greatly appreciated. Today's musical offering is I'm Not a Mountain, written and performed by Sarah Kinsley. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production intern is Tammy Gunn, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for listening in and for your support, and I will catch you in the next episode.